And I'm also going <laughs> to drink some water because my, my nose is also a bit stuck and, you know. Yeah. Same. I'm really sniffly this morning. It wasn't actually like this yesterday, so I don't know what's that all about. I need to get it out, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Have a good steam. I'm ready. I'm ready too. Yay! Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode. My guest for today is Dr. Natalie Kemp. I am so excited to have Natalie on as a guest today because she is simply amazing. Natalie is a chartered clinical psychologist and the founder and CEO of Integrate Mental Health, a center that supports, destigmatizes, and values lived experience of mental health difficulties in the mental health profession. Natalie launched Integrate Mental Health in October 2017 after her own experience of breaking down as a clinical psychologist in service in 2015. Natalie writes, I wanted to challenge provider mental health stigma. A sense of having transgressed or done something wrong by breaking down the vacuum of support and a lack of embracing our common humanity. It seemed a paradox to feel excluded and cast out from a profession that stated its compassion for those with mental health difficulties and the clients that we see. We have good knowledge and skills around mental health, but our lived experience felt silenced, stigmatized, and shamed. Very, very powerful words from Natalie that I can really resonate with. Well, you'll be hearing directly from Natalie in just a few moments. And for now, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be providing more details on where you can find Natalie and her work at Integrate Mental Health in the podcast description. So be sure to check that out. All right, you guys, I can't wait for you to tune into this episode. I truly believe that we need to be having more open conversations about how we can begin to destigmatize, value, and support the lived experience of mental health difficulties in the mental health profession, um, and also understand the obstacles that can get in the way of that. I'm addressing myself here. Hi, Natalie. <laughs> That's true. We share a great name. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much for coming on and for being a part of my podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really happy to support. Yeah. So I thought, you know, today we could, you know, have a conversation about, I guess, what we're both interested in and passionate about, which is, which is to sort of destigmatize mental health experiences and I think yep. especially for the work that you do it's about valuing and supporting lived experiences in mental health professionals absolutely yes on the nail <laughs> yes I think those two things are really important so um, it's it's not just supporting it's also valuing both both are important support is obviously important you know nobody's gonna uh, make any bones about that um, people need support sometimes um, and if you're a mental health professional uh, you are no less likely to need support than anybody else and so support is important um, however valuing is the part of the circle that never gets completed um, and we've we've yet to see much of that going on um, and that that is valuing people's experiential knowledge um, experiences of um, struggling or being in distress or whatever language 
uh, people want to use. Because the minute we start to do that is the minute we begin to embrace the fact that um, life has its ups and downs and there's a lot to be learned from all aspects of it um, at the moment um, and certainly in the past. It just has seemed to me and other people that I've spoken to that the kind of knowledge that is uh, most valued in the mental health scene is that very kind of top-down research knowledge that is based um, kind of on theory. Although you can also get into research and think about the kind of research that's generated in a qualitative way from uh, from you know yeah. interviewing people directly. So that that's a bit of a nuanced conversation, but still um, that sense of being able to say in training, for example. Um, you know, when you're being taught about a particular model of therapy or or perhaps um, a particular service setup, the, the ability to be able to say, well, you know, when I went through services uh, for my mental health difficulty around such and such, I found that really helpful and I found that that wasn't helpful at all. Can we think about that or reflect on that? You know, the ability of being able to bring your own lived experience into the room when you're a professional in training or, or or afterwards when you're qualified and 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 is that really is that really valued yeah so much good stuff that you you just said there um and i think you know that's something that i have observed as well in my own clinical training that even though many have their own lived experiences and perhaps that's the reason why they sort of came into training right it's very much hush hush and there's still a lot of stigma it's not very it you know it's it's presented as let's value it but when it comes to action and the doing there's still very much that gap that i think you're sort of talking about yeah the scene is early it's really developmentally early on this so uh, people are talking about it more now um it was really important to to so integrate work really systemically um so one part of what we do is to engage with professional bodies um around um policies and uh statements you know so i was involved in the statement that the british psychological society division of clinical psychology put out because i felt i lobbied for it it was a really important broadcast to make out there that it's okay and of course it's common to have lived experience as a mental health professional because people were incredibly worried um in the profession and also when thinking about entering the profession about whether uh they would be allowed to almost it was uh it was about permission giving but um you yeah. what what do you think the fear is oh the fear of, <laughs> of being found out as as being incompetent um yeah. that, that that somehow um having experience mental health difficulties would make you incompetent at your job um or uh, those who have living ongoing you know or episodic uh, experiences and mental health difficulties might preclude them from being able to practice successfully and thoughtfully and ethically um as a clinical psychologist for example or yeah integrate we're interested in all mental health professionals so as, a, as an rmn or as a psychiatrist yeah. uh cbt therapist you know um whatever you are and there's there's no there's there's little air between the two positions of competence and um fitness to practice fear <laughs> which is a thing um and actually these two things are over conflated you know um so people can practice inc- incredibly well and beautifully and manage their own uh, mental health needs as and when they come up really really well yeah. and it's the most inspiring conversations i've ever had with people who are going through exits and entries re-entries to work when they need to rest to recover or to seek uh, support yeah. um the just the incredible strength of that the character the the amazingness of people who've just navigated those pathways um in the face of you know really some uncertainty about how they're sharing in those moments is going to be received by the culture within which they're placed uh, which yes. is of course the most important part of this so yeah yeah and i think i think it takes immense courage to sort of break the silence and that sense of oppression that comes with that sense of uncertainty and not knowing how people will respond to 
you know, mm. you sort of sharing about your lived experience or maybe something that you're going through. And I think it's all about permission giving, right? If you, if you see that that's the culture of your work environment and people are maybe a little bit more transparent and um, they feel safe to talk about themselves in that way, it would give you that sense of, okay, like, let me experiment here and play a little bit. But if, like you said, it's a very top-down, like, we're just working and we're like, it's like us and them, then it really <laughs> fosters this sense of lack of safety. And it's totally ironic that as mental health professionals, something that is so, like, our bread and butter can feel so taboo. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, you said, you said three things there, which I just think are really important. One is kind of acknowledging that that kind of peak moment. It's almost like a clench moment where you're, you're you know, sort of mental to people who are in this, you know, who feel that they want to say something to their supervisor, to their manager, or, you know, in order, you know, from a really informed position, able to kind of speak their formulation to the extent that they want to share it or their diagnosis or whatever it is uh, that they're using as their useful framework. Um, you know, they're on that, the cusp of that moment and, and how, uh, how really worrying it can be. Um, and, and then, you know, if that is received with, absolutely of course what do you need or how can I help you know without a doubt uh with with just in in such a peaceful way you know it just becomes part of an opening conversation and actually part of a much better wider outcome in general and it's it's relational this stuff you know stigma is a social phenomenon without society wouldn't have it happens between people um and so the 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 way to resolve this or to challenge it or address it is about challenging and addressing people's perceptions of those with um, lived experience of mental health difficulties and um, working relationally in acknowledging that you know people must take responsibility but then he said something about structures that we work in yes which is also you know necessary to look at because people work in structures right so the systems around us are the, the things that we operate in um, and, you know, depending on how rigid and inflexible uh, or flexible uh, or fluid <laughs> those structures are, how compassionate they are, um, the humans within them either flourish or, or, or less so or don't. Um, and there are many good people working within inflexible systems trying their best, but they're not uh, met to... Uh, really support or um, value what people bring. I, I, I just often have this this pretty stark picture of structures as you know, like an iron or a metal cage. You know, where they're rigid and inflexible, and yeah. then the humans that work within these systems, we're, we're flesh and blood. We have feelings, we have beliefs, thoughts, values. You know, we're we're quite a soft entity within we the are, structures. Yes, and 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 if you know, if we if we continue to not be able to see our workforce as machines, <laughs> if we see if we see sorry if we only ever see our workforce as machines trying to be task focused and fill that task out and then move on, you know, there's such a desperate risk that we damage people you know within these structures within our systems um we are we are but humans you know we're just as yeah uh you know just as likely to come across life challenges as anybody else as providers of mental health uh services yeah and i often wonder where that sort of story or belief comes from that that i guess either self-disclosure within a professional setting or in therapy is seen as such a no-no, right? It's like we've been domesticated as, I don't know, as, as therapists, as human beings to, to have that belief. Well, I mean, you know, um, 
kind of in background to all of this, which, you know, COVID is a particular phase that we're going through, which is highlighting things, which we can come back to. But in background to all of this, you've got this... Um, you've got this terrible stigma against people who have mental health difficulties, this kind of uh, sense of ostracising them or outcasting them. And, um, and and then you've also got the rise of um, mental health services or service provision. And those, it was as if the, never the two should meet. Um, the, those who provide the services are 100% well, always and forever, 24 hours a day, able to provide in some kind of idealised, perfect manner and um and then uh, and then what that kind of creates is a pole offset to them you know them who use services those who are broken damaged weak defenseless incompetent i know you know these are the terrible very stark words that you get into in this as them scene it's very split so what happens is you get, you get this this sense of, well, you know, if you're in here as a provider and within services, no, you could never, um, you could never be somebody who ever used services. And you it's certainly ridiculous. can't down. And, and, and you end up with immense amounts of pain on both sides of this split. So those who are really suffering and struggling because we're human, because this happens, this can happen to anybody, um, you know, on the provider side, as it were, you know, are desperately struggling to approach and seek help and desperately fearful of fitness to practice um, issues, desperately fearful of sharing, um, you know, even up to the point of crisis when it's needed. And on the other side, you get people who are desperately denigrated, unable to flourish, you know, and you've got um, this whole brilliance now of people who are working in peer support work intentionally in services who are training into other professions if they wish to um but how do they feel you know coming into a profession with such stark ideas uh, through history about what it is to be a provider you must never have that lived experience so so you've got real suffering and then you've got what you talked about before which is this taboo um and it's this kind of the ultimate paradox really that um that we work in mental health, right? So we we understand uh, how many people can suffer and how that comes about. Or we, we, well, we we hope to understand. We're we, we're all learning. Um, we're still learning, and we will always be learning. But uh, you know, we understand that that people can 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 really struggle, and yet um, there seems to be a massive schism at times between that understanding and then turning the mirror inwards and looking at the workforce and and saying yeah that can be us you know something about very difficult to accept that you know you get all sorts of other projections going on and defenses denial and you know projection of vulnerability into the other side of the us and them so you've got this background which makes it very hard for um and it's been around since forever you know makes it very hard for people for there to be change and a sense of coming together or a sense of integration, which is why we chose integrate as, as our part of our name, because we want to. That's so well, we know, you know, when we work with people individually, that that sense of being able to integrate very difficult experiences or things that have been split off on in an intrapsychic level is, is, is a move towards health, you know, incredibly yes. painful and sometimes chaotic, but can be a move towards health. Yes. And this is what we're seeing in the scene at the moment. It's in very early development around this stuff. We've got some policy out. Um, we're, you know, I've stood up at several conferences, just as I am, without slides going, hey, you know, this is me, I'm here, you know, um, yeah, I broke down in services in 2015, this happens. And back then in 2015, that was just, this stuff wasn't even on the radar, really. It was just being picked up. Um, and Katrina Sior at, um, at UCLUS, at UCL, you know, for Stigma Research, was you're also beginning to get some work in there, some brilliant research, which they continue to do. So, you know, um, yeah. Talked for quite a long time then, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, but all really good stuff, you know. And and you know, all of this work that you're doing and integrate mental health, this conversation wouldn't even be happening if it wasn't for your lived experience. Absolutely, right? Absolutely, without a doubt, integrate 
was, it, it, I mean, it's now a limited company. I have a great director, Anna Cecilia, who works with me. Um, and, and, you know, that's been of the last kind of, goodness me, what's happening to time in COVID? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> last summer, you know, we, we started to formalise that. But but before then, um, I guess Integrates Roots, was, it was born from my breakdown. It was, it was something beautifully creative that came out of an incredibly dark place because... I, as I moved on through my recovery, I became very angry um, at what I was noticing, some of the feelings I was noticing in myself, um, internally, this sense of internalised stigma, and also I was noticing, well, definitely noticing how I felt treated by um, my own professional scene, which was to feel cast out, uh, that there was nowhere to go, there was no one listening to me, and how could I even begin to have... A conversation and, and and I was so so scared so afraid um and the professional bodies had nothing absolutely nothing so there was a massive gap a complete dearth of any support let alone valuing I mean valuing was eons away so so I, I did it myself <laughs> yay I mean yeah I mean hard work but I mean, I'm just so grateful, right? Because I have my own lived experiences too. And so when I heard about um, Integrate Mental Health and the work that you're doing, I was like, yeah, duh, like this totally makes sense to me. But it was also really, I guess, saddening to realize that it takes for, (laughs) you know, crisis and people breaking down for, for, for this issue to be visible and to be recognized and to be acknowledged um yeah so i think it thresholds i think it's it's kind of a natural way of things i think where things have been so repressed or dismissed or you know swept under the carpet however you like to think about it uh that energy doesn't go anywhere we know this you know it, it, it 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 bubbles away underneath the surface and it often it'll take an event uh for me, and integrate the event was the breakdown and, and kind of a clearing of my vision. Actually, that's what happened in my breakdown. It was quite yeah. transformative, and it, you know, and it, it, that energy has to go somewhere. And when it comes out, of course, it's going to rupture something. It's going to un well more than unsettle. It's going to break something, or it's it's quite explosive because it's been so silenced. So it's mm. going to change something on the scene and it's not going to be comfortable for anyone involved yeah. and that's 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 just to be accepted you know you see it with the explosions around racism uh with the explosions that come up around um valuing people's different gender identities and sexualities these things often because they've been people have been so hurt and because things have been so under the surface yes. things often explode into chaos first and I think although that is painful it's like the natural way of things and then it's what happens after that that is important so at Integrate we have you know a plan (laughs) Ooh, I mean for for the people who are tuning in and who may not know too much about Integrate and what on earth it is that we're talking about when we when we talk about Integrate Mental Health can you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, your story and, and Integrate and what it is that you guys are, are doing? It's funny. I, I live it so much just in my bones, so I kind of forget to explain things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so Integrate Mental Health is um, a centre for valuing, supporting and destigmatizing lived experience of mental health difficulties in mental health professionals. So that is why we exist and what we exist for. The way that we do it um, is we employ uh, two sets of knowledge, which is a proper mashup, as I like to call it. One is we are fully guided by our lived experience of having mental health difficulties ourselves um, and what that is like and um, we are also guided because we are trained clinical psychologists. When I say we, that's Anna and myself. Um, we are also guided by naturally what we know. And this is a very interesting sometimes tension 
and sometimes complement to the work because sometimes what you're taught and trained in and could be somewhat more intellectualized part of what you know can be a barrier to actually um, letting some aspects of that go in order to stay with what the lived experience is. That's, I think, a whole other com- conversation. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so we, we, we use both of, both of our knowledges, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, and we try to bring them together in some kind of harmony. So we know that in order to help change happen, and we're not the only people looking at this, but to help change happen, it's really important to take a whole systems approach. So we use... Uh, to the extent that I I can remember, I'm not very good at reading anymore. I, do, <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm sitting more more I, I'm more deeply sat in my lived experience with you know taking in some knowledge and refreshing stuff from from mm. my trained experience. But but yeah, we're, we're we're quite informed by systemic theories because they naturally lend themselves obviously to looking at a whole scene um, about the impacts and the ripples and the effects of one thing on another. And if change is going to happen. Um, then it's important that um, all different pillars, as we call them, of the mental health scene are looked at. So the pillars that we look at are the professional bodies within mental health, um, the training institutions, so do the clinical training work, um, the the trust, the NHS trust, so the workplaces, private as well, where the work happens for mental health professionals. And also the last pillar are the peers. You know, there are our peers with lived experience who are mental health professionals. And so we engage with all of those things. So with peers, we offer one-to-one mentoring and we're just about to launch a group uh, mentoring programme. With clinical training courses, we have worked with um, probably about, I haven't lost track now, nine or ten different clinical psychology courses which we provide uh, workshops into. Um, and that's workshops for the trainees. But again, thinking systemically, it's not for trainees to shoulder this because they're the least empowered of that system and, you know, the, the most fearful, if you like, in some ways, because they're under under the cost of assessment, you know, all the time. So it's a very difficult position to be in. So we're also um, now beginning to put in some training for tutors and supervisors, which is outstandingly exciting. Mm. That's a new thing for this year. Um, and also we started to teach at undergrad level as well. So we did something at University of Westminster. Oh, you know, definitely into speaking early as possible. Yes, so that, that's you know, important. We're into that. They're usually courses where there's um, a clinical component. So it might be psych- uh, psychology and counselling, I think that was, where people are really looking to go into the provider scene. Because uh, that's, that's the most relevant, you know. Yeah. Um, although it's relevant across the board, but anyway. Um, and then the professional bodies, um, that is about broadcast statements and policies so there have been two which come to mind which I worked with in a working group uh the DCP one division of clinical psychology one is a statement on clinical psychologists with lived experience that's the permission giving commonality statement out there because people don't look at job specs you know when they're thinking about coming into the scene they look to their professional body to ask that you know what is your stance on this and they needed a stance out there. It has to be overt. So that's gone out. That went out September last year. That's great. And then there's um, uh, some guidance, really. Um, and, you know, people will implement it differently in different places, given their context. But that's about um, training, uh, clinical psych- valuing and supporting um, lived experience of mental health difficulties in clinical psychology training. And that is resonant for all clinical trainings, not just clinical clinical psychology and one bit I really love in there one of my favorite bits really is about you know accepting that they're going to be placements in areas of personal resonance and how do we just have conversations about that you know and 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 that for that to be okay yeah and 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 how do we um you know yeah how do we do that so yeah we, we we integrate kind of works to engage with all of these different powers and influences in the scene um and you know it's it's energetic work and it's activism work it's lobbying work but it's also deeply compassionate work and what helps gets along get alongside that is understanding that the scene is quite early in this you know so developmentally it doesn't know how to talk about it yet very well it doesn't have that language it's you know it's um 
it's all a bit of a tangle and there's a lot of fear. But we know how to work with tangles and fears and, and difficulties, um, as I'm just experiencing right now, you know, difficulties <laughs> being able to say things, you know, yeah. in, in a way that feels safe and okay. Yeah. I'm just blown away by all the work that you've done over the years, you know, at Integrate Mental Health and especially about that statement that was published by the BPS on you know, just acknowledging and valuing lived experiences, regardless of where you may be in your career in as a healthcare provider. Mm. Um, and just so, I don't know, like moved and amazed by how you turned that pain and frustration into fire and creation and sort of manifested something that is so needed right now I feel like it was the only way it could be you know I don't feel like I kind of in a way made a conscious decision at any point I just followed this energy through um you know followed my nose on it it just had to be done it was a part of my recovery also to do it so it was it was compelling for me it was essential yeah and I think that's a gift because not many people would follow that that fire or or honor that as part of their recovery because I think it takes a lot of courage to say hey like I'm fed up like look Look at me. This is my truth. And I don't care about your opinions about me. This is me. Like, take it or leave it. I don't care anymore because enough is enough. I was ready. Well, I was ready to give up the scene. You know, I didn't even know if I was coming back in. And I did not care at that point. And so I think it probably takes a certain amount of liberation from the systems within which you were working in order to be able to just say, I'm, I'm ready to let you go unless you listen to this and I'm just going to have to give this a go and also there's nothing else I can do right now because this is what needs doing don't know if that makes sense I came out of the mental health scene to recover I think that probably tells you everything you need to know (laughs) yeah which is which is really um sad really yeah but I think oh terrible horrific awful um but also I found a good place out there and um and when I was out there out there um I can, the people I connected with most were those people who'd just done brilliant things in the service user movement. And Dave Gilbert is, is just, just such a wise, informed, excellent one of those people, you know, with his patient leadership stuff. And what I could see was, you know, we had conversations and he was an absolute fantastic support to me. And what I could see was that the same things were going on inside as were going on in this wider picture. That, that systems don't like vulnerability. They just don't like it. Organisations don't like vulnerability. Everybody in these places would much rather it wasn't there and that they didn't have to deal with it and that the focus and the task can just go on. But of course, we're humans and you can't get to the task without working through a lot of relational stuff and making sure teams are working brilliantly. You know, all the stuff that we yeah. know kind of in general about, you know, psychology of teams and work and good, healthy organisational practices. But people don't like it when when vulnerability comes up so that you see the kind of the long and arduous struggle that those who are service users who are not mental health professionals have had for the longest of times to get their voices heard to get things co-designed at core you know the, the struggle there is is just um real and the energy and the brilliance that is going on around that stuff is fantastic mm-hmm. and so you can see kind of if you you look kind of on the inside of mental health services you can see this mirrored you know again it's an activism it's a struggle to get um our vulnerability heard accepted to get people to accept their own vulnerability you know to not to put it into the people that integrate mental health only do you know what i'm yeah, saying it's, yeah there's splits and splits within splits within splits. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think the systems are so uncomfortable with vulnerability? Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, two things flash to mind. One, capitalism. Another, um, what we know from kind of interpsychic work. So, I mean, you know, here in, in this culture, we are 
producers of things, you know, achievers of things. And that is how your worth can be rated. Um, you know, things need to get done. Targets need to be met. Now, any kind of obstacle to that, which would be seen as an obstacle, um, is, is a threat you know, so any, and this isn't just about people experiencing mental health difficulties. Any kind of threat to productivity becomes a problem, and yeah. it becomes something to kind of clench up against. And you know, that that's you know that's what happens. You know, we just that's just a, whatever whatever form the vulnerability manifests itself in uh, in the workforce is 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 distasteful and unpalatable to the the consciousness or even the unconscious of the, of the the organization that is trying to just produce and work and hit targets and the, you know that's where i was talking about kind of inflexible and rigid systems yeah you know that our fleshy lovely selves with all of our myriad of thoughts and feelings and needs and and talents can get kind of crushed up horribly in in rigid systems like that and then the other the other part was the intrapsychic part which is if we think about this, um, and again, I'm kind of coming back to my lived experience, where there is vulnerability, where I've had vulnerability, there's been deep pain. It's really, really painful. It's not nice to look at. It's, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wish anybody to, you know, struggle with their mental yeah. health if that could be, you know, not happening. But it, it, it's really hard. And in my own kind of psychoanalytic work over years uh kind of intentionally long term to look at some stuff that I knew I wanted to look at it's been so painful at times to be ready to face things that yeah. have been hard oh just it's just awful and and actually you know I'm looking at something else kind of more recently um after a while um I'm, I seem to be in a new phase of something there and, and I'm just reminded of how tough it is and how upsetting so you know we as humans like we understandably have protections you know that we build you know where we're not ready to look at things yet or, yes. or we need support to help kind of move past those protections so we feel safe enough to look at stuff that hurts and yes. and you know so from a compassionate point of view i understand on an individual level as well as you know on an organisational level, why it's so hard to kind of engage with vulnerability. It needs gentleness, it needs time, it needs all the things that you don't sometimes feel that you have in, like, an outcome. <laughs> or, or, I mean, I, I, I'm, not the, I'm not a brilliant politician by any stretch of the imagination, so there might be other words other than capitalists that people who know more than I do might use, but that sense of this kind of outcome-targeted kind of, you know, workplace. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to, to ask organisations to um, create space for reflection, to create space for uh, moving to a gentle, softened position of compassion, um, whilst it's also trying to meet needs targets, you know, for what it needs to do, yeah. is, is quite a big ask. And we're seeing that, you know, under COVID now with staff oh, support yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah. People, we need we need staff on, I work in staff support, and, you know, we need staff on, on wards helping save people, you know, do, do the job, the task is the job, that, that job needs to be done. But also those staff are undergoing just horrendous, you know, now really long-term exhaustion and seeing things that you know they can't unsee that are really difficult for them and understandably so and so they have all their human needs too and 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 now covid this experience of covid has alerted uh organizations to turn their gaze inwards on the the health and well-being of uh those who are working in services to 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 try and understand now how can we how can we support this and keep going you know at these two things at the same time and sometimes you know they're just not compatible sometimes things can't keep going you know yeah. in the way that they are so you have to build flex yeah I, th I often think of um you know what's that race called that where you pass the baton on and you go around relay race you yeah. got it <laughs> 
it's not it's not a marathon for any one person it, it just can't be it's exhausting it's going to be a relay race you have to have a team you have to be able to say right I, i'm sorry i'm out i'm handing over to you i'm sorry i'm out i'm handing over to you next yeah. next next rest, rest you know seek help you know whatever you need to do um yeah yeah and i think that that sort of imagery of passing on you know the baton is really helpful because sometimes i think in in this culture and in this modern sort of urbanized way of living so many of us pride ourselves or sort of define our worth in terms of how busy we are or how much we can do and and how quickly we can get our tasks done and i think mm-hmm. certainly in the in services where there's so there's so much need and so so many targets to meet there's like little breathing space to say like let me take a pause to have my lunch away from my desk it's more like let's just do and churn and produce and see more and then take care of ourselves like i don't know i don't know is there room to take care of ourselves um so that was that was one thought and another thought that i had was leadership right it's the kind of people who are sort of leading the teams that tend to set the tone yeah. for how i guess staff members feel permitted to take care of themselves or um able to sort of i guess it's all about modeling right how am i behaving as someone who has more power to those who might be feeling more disempowered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean often we work in kind of hierarchical systems and that kind of top-down modeling can be incredibly powerful um where somebody is modeling a, a kind of a very human and compassionate and understanding view um whilst also kind of as a leader probably having to hold tasks, you know, and and the need to report yeah. somewhere else and to get things done. So I think that um you know managers supervisors tutors have a very difficult task um in 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 balancing those things because they are also operating in a system that requires certain things oh, yeah. of them. Yeah. And you know and and then to to kind of think also come back to kind of integrate stuff um it's you know they they may well have their own lived experience and mental health difficulties oh, yeah. themselves so so how how do you when you're a supervisor um of other people or you're a manager of other people and you've got this kind of holding responsibility or containing responsibility how do you navigate your own needs for rest um and for coming back in and 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 for for seeking help and support if you need to yeah. you know you're 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 carrying a different set of um things to to think through and to balance there yeah I, uh, i think it's very hard it is very hard mm. yeah it's going to be interesting when we when we move on to do the the training with supervisors and tutors um and we always start by um asking them to create a space between them where they generate uh, some of their dilemmas you know some of their themes that they they working with um and we very much we love the grassroots we love the bottom up the ground up stuff you know um i did i did ipa in my my research so I'm, i'm just naturally somebody who goes to the goes to the ground to find out what's going on first maybe i'd be an ethnographer in some kind of other <laughs> other life maybe i am being now in a way um but yeah to to kind of raise up those dilemmas um and to create space to work with it and um you know that even if you're even if you don't have the answers yet you know even if you're just full of kind of questions or uh the contradictions or the difficulties i think given the earliness of this uh in the scene about kind of value and supporting of experience in mental health professions given the earliness of it at the moment it is it is good enough to um to start to just create spaces where you can have those conversations and think yes. about it together and the links will happen mm. and that that can be generative so 
so you know it's the beginning of something and it's okay not to know uh, yet how to do this that well um, but to be able to talk about it is always the first step and I always talk about um, reflective spaces as like uh, the, the, if you were to imagine kind of life as a city the reflective spaces would be the green parks uh, mm. in the city which create the, you know the lungs of the city the oxygen mm-hmm. to breathe mm-hmm. through the work mm-hmm. uh, that we all do so um, you know let's create some space some breath some air into these conversations and use all of the talents that are there to, to guide and generate and be creative through to kind of the next stage um, so yeah some things we just don't know yet how to do you know we're not sure for example where you know, clinical psychology training courses are you know have to meet certain targets there are only certain amounts of leeway that can be given around certain things you know and how how do we um how do we kind of uh, honor the humanity and the fleshiness and our needs and talents within that well you know we don't quite know yet um but let's talk about it you know and that's what the silence has stopped which is yes. so sad because that 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 that's really sad because you know, stigma leads to silencing, you know, leads to people feeling isolated, cast out, being, it, 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 on top of any personal pain that you might be dealing with from your mental health difficulties or life experiences or trauma or whatever it is, you get this second layer of um, internalised stigma there. Internalised stigma is just when you agree with, I mean, you don't, you might not be that conscious, but it's a sense of agreeing with um, all the terrible discrimination um, against mental people, mental health difficulties, yeah. and you apply that to yourself, and you say, "Yeah, it's true. I am mm-hmm. bad. I am worthless. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, I am incompetent. I can't do this. I am weak. I have nothing to offer. I have no talent." Awfully sad, and it makes me want to go just thinking about it. Yeah. But the moment that you can become aware of that um, that uh, part that has been internalized, which is a lot of the work that we do in mentoring, actually, and give it back, take it out, take that out and give it back to the scene, is the moment you start empowering yourself to say, well, uh, yeah, I still may have some work to do around my personal pain, or people might be recovered from that, people in different places. But I can now, you know, clears the view, you can see and validate that um, that actually this, this stigma is very dangerous in fact you know it's not just people get used to talking about stigma it kind of just becomes a word but actually it 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 has it leads to dangerous it can set off dangerous mechanisms Mm. in in people you know in terms of you know really bringing them down um and debilitating people uh so it's actually you know really needs to be understood as something to be worked with actively to you know, at the peer level that we work in to, to help people kick that out, put it back, put the, put the crap back where it belongs, which yeah. is stupid attitudes out there. You know, alleviate yourself of some of that weight and, and, and pain that's not yours. You don't need to carry it. It's, it's silly stuff that's being projected yeah. into you. Um, and and uh, feel lighter for it. And Anna and I, well, I call it the turn. I can't remember what Anna calls it, but we've both had experiences where that's that what we've interjected has, has been taken out and given back and and it's just it's a real crux moment because you begin to flourish yes you, know, you begin to say oh you know that's not true I can see it for what it is and I'm mm. going to do what I need to do to support myself or, or to bring for look and bring forward what I value about my lived experience I'm going to speak it yes you know I'm going to take up my place from which I was cast out powerful stuff <laughs> So, I guess, how did you do that? I mean, that's probably another conversation altogether, but what are some steps that people can take, right? Besides, you know, finding a safe space to have a conversation about it, but particularly about taking that stuff, right? That icky story that is just not true and just giving it back. What are some ways that we can start to make that movement toward that flourishing that you talk about I think the first thing is just to know that that process exists to validate the fact that thing you know what what in to say what internalized stigma is that it is a thing and that that happens to to 
to have people talk about that, to validate what that feels like um, inside the body, inside the psyche, the weight of it, to, to, to yeah, I, I guess we would call that kind of psychoeducation aspect. It exists, it's valid, it's valid it has an impact, um, and it's a thing that, 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 can, that can be um, kind of almost... I don't mean quantified in numbers, but can be felt as a thing in the body. You know, it's a weight that can be carried. And then once you understand and identify that thing, then you can um, work on ways of uh, increasing the discrepancy between the thing and you. You know, you can make a separation start to happen. And then once you, you almost, um, again, kind of bit in sight language, you know, you can almost if you wanted to, I did a lot of work with children, you could externalise that and you could look at that and you can have a real grasp of what that looks like and feels like. It's kind of a part of a process, really. Um, and then you can have also validated an understanding of the splits in the scene and why that's happened in the first place, why introduction happens, why why projection happens from the scene, why, why the mental health scene doesn't like vulnerability you know, and wants yeah. to cast people out with a tin and lays, lays, lays all of that kind of badness on you. Yeah. Um, so, so it's about that kind of, I guess some of it's about psychoeducation and some of it's about being supported through mentoring to, to kind mm. of um, take it out, give it up, let it go, give it back. Yeah. And I think particularly about lived experiences. And when I reflect on my own, there's just so much shame, right? That makes it feel so unspeakable. And the moment that you sort of speak about it and sort of share it with someone, it takes that that belief that, oh, people are going to think you're crazy. They're going to like judge me. And, and you realize actually, no, like sometimes it gives the other person, the listener, their permission to say, oh my God, actually me too. Like, <laughs> like actually me too. And then, and then I'm sitting there thinking, what? Like, dude, we're just humans, you know, we're just so human. And I think even the word mental health problem, mental health difficulties or labels creates a sense of, um, this idea that we're unchanging as people that once you're, once you're sort of um, ill, you kind of stay that way. Oops, are you with me? I am, sorry. I think the internet just went, yeah, I'm okay. back. Okay. Um, did I cut off there? You did. So you were saying something about the, talking about it as mental health or labels. Yeah. So I was, I was just saying that I think maybe sometimes it feels really hard to talk about these things, these experiences. It's because these, the language that we're using to describe distress and painful experiences is inherently like stigmatizing in a way. Like mental health experiences, mental health difficulties, or like depression or anxiety disorders. It, it sort of gives one, the impression that we're always going to stay that way, that we're unchanging. But from the level of direct experience, we're such fluid beings. We're changing from moment to moment. I hope that made, made sense. Did it make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it really makes me think... Uh, two things. One is that where we are in 2021 is with these um, lots of different languages um, and predominant models around understanding mental health to the extent that we do in this century, <laughs> you know. And if you kind of take a massive, massive view, I'm really, really interested in how people will uh, look back on how we talk about mental health now <laughs> um, in, yeah. in 100 years' time. Yeah. Right? Um, and uh, where will be then? And, and, and goodness only knows. I, I don't know. So, so what we have is, you know, people who value diagnostic models and who work within that and use that language. We have other people who I probably usually speak in more psychodynamic terms, um, I've always had analysis. So that, that, you know, is how I've made sense of things. Won't make, won't be valuable to somebody else. Yeah. You know, um, we have, we have lots of different ways and, some of those models have more power than others uh, right now. And, and I can see kind of the shifts and the movements on the scene to, to challenge some things here and to address other things, you know, and I'm, I'm watching it. And, and, and 
where we what we think about this at Integrate is that we accept where where the scene is right now, that all these languages and different models and different powers that these models have are just around in our society, yeah. in our thinking. Um, and different people that we work with um, bring forward their how they've made sense of things. And, uh, you know, that gets into, you know, different positions people have on medications for mental health and all sorts of things. And we just, we just accept that some people really value med- medication, some people don't value medication. You know, there's, there's a whole whole range of experiences um and I think when we're we we kind of really steadfast and pride ourselves on being kind of a peer uh platform so we meet we just meet people where they are with all their different experiences you know coming together um yeah Mm. it's it's really really very interesting and I'd be very interested to know where things are going to be in a hundred years time (laughs) yeah We'll probably not be here, but we'll be watching from from somewhere. <laughs> the antenna is like I very much doubt I'll be here <laughs> unless longevity is, you know, changed. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, um, you mentioned that you sort of took yourself out of the mental health scene to recover and heal. So what's been most healing to you? What's been, you know. Yeah, what brings you alive and helps you to feel like I'm home, I'm I'm in my center, or I'm okay amidst yeah. all this crap, all this stuff that's like, uh, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think I think there have been some really important ingredients for me. Um, so I think the the most important, the most critical at one point was a, a, an absolutely fantastic relationship with my analyst. Um, over a long time she she knows me like the back of her hand (laughs) and and her sense she was there kind of when I broke down because I was in analysis already so so I broke down I guess you would say kind of in the cradle of analysis and uh, although I couldn't uh, connect with her at certain points of that because I was too distressed um, I did in general stay connected enough before some uh, so, you know some bits during and and then and then afterwards um and the way that she was able to help me understand and make sense of what was happening so everything had meaning was incredibly important it was not a meaningless experience um it it happened for a reason it made sense um i, I didn't know all of this exactly at each of those points but it got to it so so having um that kind of containing function throughout it meant that I was able to feel although I was very afraid at some points feel less afraid than otherwise there was a sense of somebody helping me to think do some thinking uh, when I perhaps was less able to Uh, so that that was incredibly important to me um, because I'm, I am a sense maker um, and I also <laughs> struggle as much as many people do with uh, feeling less in control of what's going on. Um, so some aspects of that, I just had to give up a sense of control. And that stuff, what really helped with that was just being surrounded um, by family who were trying to figure it out as well. You know, they're no experts. They, <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. And, you know, that was very hard at some points but they stuck by me um and my parents provided me a safe space which was needed um because I moved home um and then as I came out I guess as I was come out the other end I was really interested in I'd always been interested just from a really basic point of view I don't pretend to know the half of it but um energy and emotions and feelings always had energy for me uh, I could feel, you know, you could, I could feel different emotions and feelings like energy in my body. And um, I could feel also through the process of analysis where things were stuck. Um, yeah. I could always feel when we would come up against a defence and I could, like a little wall. It was, it was, it had a very, my experience had a very energetic component to it, a very bodily component. Yes. Um, and so I became interested um, in, in, in looking at energy more in the body and I started to look I've always been very interested in the martial arts um I did a bit when I was younger and uh, I became interested in qigong mm. um because I just thought I want to 
um, I want to come back into my body and to understand a bit more about this this energetic kind of yeah. lived experience, you know, that I had throughout it. So, and also my mind, when I was talking about the tension sometimes of being a mental health professional and, and also going through distress, um, intellectualization could be a real problem because oh, yeah. it could be a barrier to just living in your experience and letting go. So um, I, I also was very keen to kind of... Um, kind of let go of and go into a territory I didn't know too much about and just yeah. to kind of be in my body with energy so Qigong has been something and um after lockdown's finished at some point hopefully I want to do a Tai Chi class and learn that but I'm really interested in learning it as a martial arts which is, which is its true nature um so typical me I probably want to take things to the nth degree <laughs> but I can't do that right now but yeah yeah um, I'm very interested in. I also find moving, moving meditations much easier for me to access than sitting. Yeah. Uh, just that's my, my personality and what I am. So those things have been important. Yeah. And I think I can see a bit of the Qigong influence in the logo, the yin and yang. Am I? Am uh, I, am I <laughs> is this? Is that right? Or because I've always been curious. It seems like two koi fishes with like mm-hmm. the yin and the yang, like the Taoism sort of symbol yeah it's a uh, I, I mean I know less about it from a from from that kind of philosophical point of view I need to learn more uh, where I originally came to it from was more kind of Jungian ideas of the shadow side um, yeah for sure but but also the understanding of balance and also the understanding that we all carry the shadow we all carry vulnerability and so um, if you move on then to what we were hoping to get to in Integrate, which is a sense of integration, it's about honouring both. It's about honouring uh, honoring the stuff that we all can um, put away because it feels hard to look at, whether we're people or whether we're organisations. <laughs> um, but the, that, that energy exists, that shadow energy exists, the stuff that's hard to talk about, speak about, look at. Um, and and, and, and to, to honour that that's there. Um, and to honour all that is overt in our everyday energies and faces that everybody sees. And, 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 and they're, they're two halves of um, the same kind of uh, representation of us as whole humans, you know. Yeah. You can't just have, you know, the mask or the, you know, the face that is presented to society. Yeah. Uh, that's just one part, really. So it's about kind of moving towards an integration of both types of energy. And yeah, I need to do some more learning about the yin and the yang energy and how that's different. It's it's basically everything that you said, right? There can be no light without darkness and no darkness without light. Like, and to sort of ostracize and sort of repress the shadow and say, this, Mm. these are the disavowed feelings and things that are too painful to look at. It's not me. They sort of come back and haunt you in different ways. Yeah, they're not going anywhere. Yeah, (laughs) externally or internally, they're coming for you. If it's not a knock, it's a tsunami. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the exposure and the chaos. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the mental health scene can try with all of its might to get rid of things that it doesn't like or that makes it feel uncomfortable, i.e. those of us, whether we're service users who are mental health professionals or who aren't, you know, who represent and manifest in an embodied way uh, the vulnerability that all humans can experience in society. It can try with all its might to kind of size that off and get rid of it, but it won't be successful. No. It, it just won't because um, because that energy and those people quite rightly don't go anywhere and they're here to convey a very important message and so the only way forward is to relax <laughs> to relax to soften to open up and to embrace and to just yeah find a way where um, where vulnerability and and you know can can coexist in our systems and 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 improve them you know because the systems are only based on kind of when things are operating well um, or where people you know feel able to engage um that it's just not going to work um systems don't operate well and people can't engage and there are huge barriers Mm. um so we are only successful to the extent that we are able to meet those people who feel disengaged um or disabled by it's a very discriminatory structures in our society Mm. yeah well 
Natalie, I think we've spoken. We can. We, I think we can go on for a while, but I'm aware that this episode is running over an hour. And as much as I still want to ask a bunch of questions, I think maybe we gotta just wrap things up here. It's been lovely to talk about my favorite subject. Thank you. For me. <laughs> Your favorite subject. It's back to school. Um, yeah, I, I find these conversations just so enriching and just so nourishing. Just to talk, just talk real, just just talk about this stuff, right? And like you say, relax a little. Yeah. 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 I do have one question. It's just my personal curiosity. Mm-hmm. So integrate mental health. Why is it spelt that way? Like instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why is it spelt that way? Um, that is just pure <laughs> pop. Um, I don't know. It is the answer. Uh, I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine who was around at the time when I was launching it in seventeen, and we were thinking about you know what to call it, and it came up, and. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to make it funky and shorter. <laughs> Apologies to me. I find it irritating. Well, <laughs> no, I think it's no super deep cool. To that, I'm afraid. Yeah, but it keeps it lighthearted, right? It's not like so serious. Ah, well, yes, and that is a yeah, good observation and important, actually, now you bring that up, because um, yeah, the extent to which we can approach stuff. You know, you think about working with kids. Yeah, the extent to which we can approach stuff in a in a playful manner, um, stay creative, stay open. Perhaps, perhaps I'd like to think maybe that was, that thought was in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's cool. It's cool. In integrate mental health with the koi fishes. <laughs> All right, Natalie. Thank you so thank you much. much. Yeah, really was a gift having this conversation. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.